0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm CJ, one of the hosts for the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Liat Ben-Moshe about her new book, Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and Prison Abolition. Uh, Today... This With the discussion of this book, um, I really just wanted to say, first of all, that it's such an engaging work, and I, I really hope that people pick it up after we have this discussion. Uh, but without further ado, um, Dr. Liat Bin-Moshe, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, um, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, a bit about your, your background um, before you even we're considering uh, this this tome.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Um, Yeah, I'm um, currently, I'm a professor in the Criminology Department, Criminology, Law, and Justice in University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, And I'm based uh, in Chicago is where I live and where this interview is being conducted right now. And um, I um, am trained as a sociologist, as kind of a humanistic social scientist, uh, as it were. Um, And I have background um, in kind of interdisciplinary interdisciplinary fields, particularly disability studies, uh, med studies, gender studies, uh, and sociology. So um, that's kind of about my scholarly pursuit. Um, I should say that I'm not from the U.S. I came to the U.S. to pursue graduate work and I just never left. (laughs) Um, So some of my kind of really interest in some of these uh, topics came from just pure curiosity. Um, You know, the, the U.S. being like a mass incarcerator of the world and also uh, learning about disability movements and disability culture and disability arts was all something kind of new to me. So that was, um, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of a preface. Uh, I also consider myself um, uh, really a scholar activist. So my scholarship is meant to be activist, but I also do a lot of stuff that's not scholarship. (laughs) Um, that, you know, might be uh, read more as as activist work. But I really, um, for the purposes of this podcast, I really hope that the scholarship itself would be seen as also activist work.
1: Yeah, that's that's great to know. I was wondering if you could tell us then um, how you came about um, this specific um, sort of framing of this book. And and so how did you come to write decarcerating disability and, and what what made you feel as though this was a book that needed to be written
2: yeah that's a great question i mean i i kind of um I always thought it's a book that needs to be written um and like i you know i think i said it in other interviews but You know, I never thought I would be the person writing this book that needed to be written. The reason why I thought it's needed, um, Decarcerating Disability is about the connection between two major decarceration movements uh, in the U.S. One is deinstitutionalization. And uh, I want to preface this by saying that when I say deinstitutionalization, I mean... um, three things. Uh, First of all, I mean the closure of psychiatric institutions, but also institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And often when we talk about the deinstitutionalization, people only think about psychiatric facilities and only think about hospitals. But there's a long uh, history of uh, both oppression and resistance in the deinstitutionalization. The institutionalization of people with intellectual developmental disabilities. So that's number one for the institutionalization. So it's the closure of these facilities over time in the U.S. But secondly, it's also um, the the shift from um, sending people to institutions. In, the shift from that into community li- living. So it's not just the closure of facilities. It's also kind of a shift in our uh, ideology and understanding of um, the the kind of the worth of people with disabilities. Uh, but then uh, number three, the institutionalization is also, um, to me, a social movement or particularly a logic. Um, and the reason why I say that to answer your question about why this book is because I don't think people understand deinstitutionalization as those things. Um, I don't right. think, first of all, that uh, there's people connect psychiatric deinstitutionalization to uh, deinstitutionalization and intellectual disabilities. Um, there's really wonderful people who do a history of one or the other, but not both, uh, even though they're, they're very much related to each other. And certainly um, I haven't seen people who connect that to what the the premise of the book is, is to connect the institutionalization to prison abolition. And so um, I um, started to be more active in both of those movements, uh, both kind of disability rights and then later disability justice movements, um, being connected more to disability culture, uh, the kind of political arm of of disability um, in the, in the U S especially. And then um, this, and then becoming more connected to anti-prison work, particularly prison abolition. And I saw that there's so much connections between those two movements and these two ideologies, but yet there's hardly anybody in that intersection. Uh, I mean, of course, there's always been a few, but very, very few. Um, and definitely nobody who's done a scholarly analysis of how those two things are connected. And so for the longest time, I was really, um, again, especially as a non-American, was really uh, waiting for somebody to, to do that work that's not me. Um, but as I became more entrenched in the movements, it became clear to me that um, I should just write it. And if somebody, you know, by the time this is published, there's another thing, then great. Um, And I should say that uh, in Parsons book, for example, which talks about kind of similar themes, but, uh, really in more in the relationship within psychiatric institutionalization and the rise of incarceration. So her book is not about abolition, but her book uh, came like a year or so before mine. So people have been working simultaneously, um, but it's definitely not something I set out to do like in my youth or something like that. It's really just as being an embedded person in both the movements made me feel like there's a gap here and the gap would be helpful for the movements um, to to understand each other.
1: Yeah, it's very fascinating. Just being sort of like in two places at once, giving yourself that that particular position to consider both simultaneously, um, and you do that so well. I was wondering if you could, um, you know, by by getting into some of the material of the book, if you could talk. I guess first a little bit about this. History of deinstitutionalization, um, and you know, I, I think in ch- in the perfect storm chapter, you talk about some of the, so, you know, so, there's many of course causes or or uh, forces here in this deinstitutionalization process. It's not ever fully formed, but um, if you could talk about you know some of these issues around uh, new policy, especially around the Kennedy administration, um, s- some of the financial changes, as well as the uh, lawsuits, and even within psychiatry, um, thinking about the changes to uh, psychiatric treatment and um, uh, psychiatric drugs, right? So um, yeah, if you could just give us a, a little bit more insight into this process of deinstitutionalization.
2: Um, sure, so, um- like I said, one one of the goals, uh, really, um, in the kind of earlier chapters of the book. So, so I should preface this again by saying that the book um, offers a, a genealogy. Uh, I'm not a historian, so this you know really offers a genealogy of deinstitutionalization. And what I mean by genealogy, I mean um, in a very kind of uh, Foucauldian, uh, I mean Michel Foucault uh, idea of. Um, an idea, by the way, he took from Nietzsche, of course, that um, it's, it's the history of ideas, right? Like how do ideas kind of travel and circulate ideas or discourses and so on? And so it's not so much kind of a historical pursuit to try to find um, what caused the de- de- institutionalization, Because I think uh, much like how you asked the question that um, it's it's really an unanswerable question. And that's why I call the chapter The Perfect Storm. Uh, But more than that, the the way that people have been asking the question um, obscures what they actually want to know. Um, if that makes sense. And so sometimes people put the finger on, this is what led to the initialization, or this is what led to mm-hmm. the Uh When to me, the really important question <laughs> as a genealogist, maybe is, as opposed to a historian, is why those things, uh, right? Like why do people highlight the particular things that they highlight in their um, genealogies or historiographies? And why not other things? And by other things, I particularly mean uh, what I talk about in the second chapter, which is the, the movements, the ideologies, the knowledges of um, people with disabilities, people who are institutionalized, imprisoned people, and so on. Uh, why uh, why not focus on those things as also engines to deinstitutionalization? So to me, it's not like I'm saying those things caused deinstitutionalization. Uh, I think a lot of things Caused the institutionalization. And I would also say that um, one thing that, you know, that could be a critique of the book, but I was trying to kind of tell a very um, general story. And uh, one thing that I learned (laughs) by doing this research uh, over the years um, is that the US is very big (laughs) and it's very big and it's uh, actually contradictory. So things that happened in like, Mm -hmm. let's say, Illinois, uh, which is where I am today, it doesn't at all represent what happened in Texas, for example, or California, or. So um, some of the things that I might say now in answer to your question might not, uh, or all your questions might not resonate to particular people like where they live and the history of uh, deinstitutionalization in their state. And and this is you know, just another thing to contribute to the fact that deinstitutionalization didn't happen in the same way everywhere. Um, so it's impossible to answer the question, how did it happen? In some states, it kind of never did. Um, you know, just there's, there's a bunch of states that never closed um, the majority of their institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, Illinois is a pretty, you know, good example of that. Um, they it did close some some institutions, I should say, but it's it's not a leader <laughs> in uh, in in deinstitutionalization. And um, you know, some some states closed all of their institutions for people in, with intellectual disabilities, uh, and, and most of their institutions uh, for people with psychiatric disabilities. So it really is so very varied. Um, and one of the so one of the goals for this uh, chapter was to create. Um, a a genealogy that connects the history of deinstitutionalization in mental health with the history of deinstitutionalization in intellectual disabilities by answering that question, but by putting it on its head. So looking at the kind of things that other people have said, "Quote unquote," caused deinstitutionalization, and seeing why. Um, why did they focus on those things, and what what else happened like in in that time? Not to say that those things did not contribute. So, for example, um, the the history of um, Thorazine, I think, is really interesting. So, one of the things people say, particularly in regards to um, psychiatric institutions is that um, psychiatric institutions closed because uh, drugs were discovered that uh, really helped people with psychiatric disabilities and now they could live in the community or live outside of institutions. Well, every part of what I just said can be refuted. First of all, drugs were not discovered. Um, They were invented and um they were in fact invented particularly thorazine uh was invented um as a drug to control institutionalized populations it was not a drug that was meant to get people out um the point of thorazine this comes from the really great history of um um judith uh, stacy uh, uh, S um it's with the W and a Z um, and um, it's also um, uh, really, you know, so, so to summarize like the, the history that she, that she does uh, so well is that the, the drug Thorazine actually, um, they, they had a really hard time importing it into the US because um, s- psychiatrists were very reluctant to prescribe drugs to uh, institutionalized um, populations. And so they kind of sold the drugs. First of all, they created like task force within within hospitals. So they, um, you know, did this kind of like direct consumer thing, but direct to psychiatrists very, very earlier on. Like we're talking about the kind of the 40s and, and 50s. And um, they created these um, uh, task forces within hospitals, for example, and um, to try to kind of sell the drugs as something that would calm the quote-unquote patients, and in essence would enable them to um, be better suited for other therapies. Um, So the point of the drug was not so much to, uh, you know, kind of control people per se, but to control them enough so they're susceptible to other treatments. Um, So this was not a drug that was meant to deinstitutionalize. So it's really interesting that it's seen as that now. Um, And also the fact that it's seen as kind of a panacea for psychiatric treatment when it was used abundantly also in institutions for people with intellectual disabilities. I haven't seen even one account that talks about how Thorazine was the cure that saved people with intellectual disabilities and created deinstitutionalization. There, there is no such account, I don't think. And so why is it treated so differently even though it's done on, on people in the same kind of carceral environments? It's because this is my analysis, because Thorstein gives us a particular story about how madness works. And it gives us a story about madness um, that talks about madness as mental illness And so this is connected, again, to the kind of genealogy, the history of ideas of the time that psychiatry in this country turned to biopsychiatry. So people that think that this was always the case, it was not always the case. Um, This kind of idea that madness is an illness of the brain um, or an illness of the mind is actually, you know, relatively new. Um, And so the story really fits this uh, psychiatry kind of claim for quote-unquote cure, even though psychiatrists like know that this is uh, a very, uh, mm-hmm. this is not what happened, right, in, in, in hospitals at that time. And I'm giving this kind of at length because I do this kind of analysis with every other kind of source of, um, when people say, oh, why why was this, um, uh, um a cause for deinstitutionalization and how can we activate it in a different context? I try to really actually warn against that. So I'll give one more example and then we can move on uh, because I think this example is actually really, really important for abolition. One of the other causes that people say that led to deinstitutionalization is, um, like you said, lawsuits and exposés. Um, Deinstitutionalization has been vastly litigated and still is today. And it's litigated um, not just on an individual basis, like so-and-so gets um, uh, you know incarcerated in a particular um, psychiatric hospital and so on, let's get him out, but I mean more like the class action lawsuits, which was a tremendous oh. thing that happened that I talk about more in a different chapter. But the idea that people have is that these lawsuits and exposés um, really uh, created the conditions that enable the liberation of people because they exposed, as the name "exposition" su- suggests, the conditions of confinement of these settings. They expose how terrible these sites were. They exposed how there really wasn't treatment in these psych facilities, um, how there really wasn't um, rehabilitation or habilitation in these um, institutions for people with intellectual disabilities that were sometimes called schools, but there was no schooling in them. And so um, I show in the book how this is a very noble kind of notion. And indeed, it's absolutely true that these lawsuits and these uh, exposes politicized people, including people who were institutionalized um, at that time. This is absolutely true, uh, and activist lawyers and you know created organizations. but they did not close down these facilities. and in fact, in uh, many cases, they ended up um, making these institutions linger on. <laughs> Because the effects of these lawsuits and um, exposés uh, is that then the idea is if the conditions of confinement are so bad, why don't we reform it? Why don't we put more money into it and more staff and more people and um, you know, move to a better building and, and construct more things and, and so on and so on? And so that made these places actually linger on. And And to me, that's a really good lesson of the difference between reform and abolition
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, like I was saying, that there are these different forces, and they're never completely determinate. Um, and there's also these, um, as you mentioned here, so much of this, of of these traditional histories of deinstitutionalization, um, value too seems to value too much the forces that sort of top-down forces, especially uh, when we think about policy or when we think about um, uh, psychiatric expertise, for example. But you do bring up some of this um, psychiatric expertise in the the abolition and deinstitutionalization chapter on normalization and the myth of mental illness. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about some of these Competing ideas, right? It wasn't just one idea, but some of these competing ideas around mental illness and its relationship to institutionalization and deinstitutionalization.
2: Sure. Um, so I'll try to kind of be brief. Um, it's uh, the 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 second chapter really kind of be, builds on. Um, the the question that we kind of we just ended with, which is, um, if if we see the the the, the genealogy of ideas as um, like you were just saying uh, top down as as expert knowledge,s I wanted to show that um, there were a lot of of other knowledges um, and resistance movement that really contributed to deinstitutionalization. And I want to be sure that, you know, the whoever listens understands that I'm not saying that I think that those things are the major engine of deinstitutionalization. Uh, I, that's not what I'm saying, because I don't think we can quantify it uh, in those ways. But what I try to kind of find is the thorough line of, Abolitionist knowledges in deinstitutionalization, or abolitionist ideas um, within deinstitutionalization. So I'm also not saying that everything in deinstitutionalization was abolitionist. Like I was just talking about the exposés, for example, that were done out of you know extremely well-meaning people. Um, but it wasn't until. This is again my analysis that to me, when I looked at this history, it really wasn't until um, the, there was a shift in perspective, like a paradigm shift that occurred, that I started to see aboli- uh, abolition in the institutionalization, meaning people that said no more. No more putting people in institutions for people with intellectual disabilities. No more going to doctors and the doctors prescribing for people to be institutionalized, especially kids, right? This was like incredibly pervasive. I I don't know how young, um, you know, people who are listening are, but, um, you know, generationally, there's like a whole generation that was disappeared (laughs) into these institutions, right? Like people have like this, oh, I have this aunt I never knew existed and she lived in a psych facility like half her life. Or I have this, uh, you know, uncle that um, lived in, in, in an institution for people with intellectual disabilities. And these places, of course, still exist. But the idea was um, no more. <laughs> no more new admissions. Uh, no more sending people to these places. Um, and, and the really radical idea that people, no matter their disability, can and should live in the community with their peers and um, again this this was a a radical idea and in the field of intellectual disabilities i trace it to a pretty controversial um kind of ideological and policy construct called the principle of normalization Mm -hmm. um that was imported to the u.s by uh, wolf wolfensberger I got to talk with um uh, before he uh, he passed um uh, and he, he passed away a few years ago and um he you know he said it like he got death threats um for that you know for for talking about that and um I, I just want to say for people who don't know you know the principle of normalization really comes down to this idea that uh, people should live. Uh, in as normal as possible environment and uh, this normal as possible cycle of life as their peers um, the principle the principle of normalization is not about necessarily normalizing people um, mm-hmm. and uh, but uh, but this idea of, of the principle of normalization and, and uh, Wolfensberger himself and the people who pres- pres- not prescribe uh, subscribe to to this notion um, are are and should be very much critiqued uh, in disability circles. Um, but what I try to say, I'm not trying to uh, kind of make him look like a hero or something like that, but I'm trying to say that these ideas were very radical like at that time, and they did come from professionals in the field, but they came from these kind of outlier professionals that started to infuse, um, what they probably will never call, but I will call, abolitionary kind of mindset in regards to the institutionalization. Because if everybody should live uh, with and, and study with and um, have access to sexuality with, and you know all of those things with their peers, then we absolutely don't need things like institutions, uh, and we also don't need things like segregated schools, and we also don't, and so on and so on. And so this idea that this came from educators and other people in the field uh, was very radical at that time. Um, and we should also critique it. <laughs> and I do um, in the book. And so I show how that, for example, kind of worked, like how these ideas that started to put forward more abolitionary notions in industrialization, how they kind of infiltrated. So, you know, for instance, people who talked about these things were then asked to um, go uh, testifying the lawsuits I was talking about earlier, right? To say that people uh, shouldn't be institutionalized in these kind of class action lawsuits um, and so on. So how their ideas traveled, Um, The second example that I have in this chapter is uh, the example of uh, the anti-psychiatry movement. Um, So how the knowledges of people within mad movements, um, anti-psychiatry movements, consumer survivors, ex-patients movements, and those are all, by the way, not necessarily the same people. um, How their ideas also... um, were abolitionary some of them were not abolitionary but i tried to kind of um show the idea between abolition and reform and the movement between abolition and reform in their notions of deinstitutionalization uh who and why and how uh fought for this idea that we we shouldn't do this anymore and we should close it down and by closing it down in um anti-psychiatry, I mean, some people believed in closing down psychiatric institutions or hospitals, and some also believed in uh, completely the abolition of psychiatry as a field of medicine. And so I show how kind of abolition thinking and ideas worked and didn't work within those movements as well.
1: Excellent. Yeah. And I I wanted to follow up too with thinking about um, some of these Counter knowledges or, or counter epistemologies um, that in the third chapter, um, which rounds out, you know, what you call the the first part of the book, the conceptualizing decarceration part. Um, that in this chapter, I I think at least for me this this was uh, the, the most interesting because I think that there's probably been the least written about it uh, particularly in this context um, like from the position of those who have been um, you know institutionalized or incarcerated um, that you that you start to talk about abolition here and and decarceration in these broader epistemological frames um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about you know some of these you know so-called Futurist knowledges. Um, you also talk about maroon knowledge for abolition. And so, in this chapter, what's what's the sort of uh, intervention that you're trying to make here, and um, how does this help us think about abolition more broadly?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, um, this um, chapter is really, uh, you know, the first two chapters really talk about what can we learn about deinstitutionalization. And what is the institutionalization and how it happened and why and what can we learn from it. Um, but the third chapter really tries to kind of uh, connect it already to to anti-prison work and to prison abolition work. Uh, I mean, abolition is obviously like a thorough line between all the chapters and the kind of difference between uh, reform and... Um, and abolition or reform non-reformist reforms and abolition okay. um, that I'm happy to kind of talk about more um, later. Um, but th- so the third chapter constructs what I call this uh, epistemology of abolition, this um, okay. DIS, uh, D-I-S uh, epistemology meaning not just um, how we know what we know. But also, um, how we um need to kind of let go of particular ways of knowing. And this is really um you know one of the things that um I think are are incredibly important as uh, as a a thorough line between uh, these two movements and ideologies and uh frameworks is uh this idea of of this epistemology so let me just um say kind of wh- what it is in a few examples and how it works in in both contexts um so this epistemology is uh the idea that uh like i said we need to uh let go of particular Uh, ways of uh knowing um that abolition of um of course reality is uh an ethic uh, which is something Ruthie gilmore of course always says like it's not just a practice but it's it's an actual ethic um so what i try to say here is that it's also an epistemology it's also uh produces uh specific forms of knowing, not just content of knowledge, but particular forms of knowing and not knowing. So let me be more specific. In the chapter, I talk about how we need to let go of particular attachments to ideas that we have. For example, this idea of um, we need to wait, right? Um, we we don't have all the alternatives right now. Um, therefore, abolition uh, of prisons or abolition of institutions, or uh, maybe even abolition of of psychiatry might be great, but surely uh, we can't do it right now, right? Like we have to wait till all the conditions are met and and the alternatives are in place. And what I learned from um, uh, prison abolition work and definitely from deinstitutionalization is that it happens um, when it's effective, it actually um, happens when you don't wait. And this is what you said at the beginning um, about maroon knowledges and about fugitive knowledges. You know, this is the knowledge of, uh, if we talk about abolition, abolition, you know, abolition comes from abolition of slavery um, in the transatlantic um, slave trade. um, And, People weren't waiting. You know, who can't wait, right? I mean, people mm-hmm. who are institutionalized, people who are imprisoned, people who were enslaved, those are the people that advocated for abolition under very different ethical premises than the kind of, um, you know, white abolitionists um, that also advocated for um, the abolition of uh, the end of slavery. And so for, for people who can't wait and couldn't wait, they have a different epistemology of, of, of um, activism and of abolition. And um, it's a praxis of um, um, trial and error. Um, so this is what um, another sociologist, Thomas Mathieson, uh called, um, he said, abolition is um, lies in the unfinished uh, in the sketch. And I think that this is very true to both movements uh that uh and prison abolition really is about this process of collectively understanding things and building things while we're living in the present that we have. We don't wait for the ideal conditions um it there's a sense of urgency here right it's a It's a utopian but in the kind of queer um, uh, Jose Munoz uh, talked about you know like queer mm-hmm. um, in Cruising Utopia. I talked about you know the kind of um, uh, uh, talking about the the um, then and there while living in the here and now. And this is exactly uh, what I see here as the the kind of praxis of of abolition. Um, another example is uh, letting go of this idea that. Um, we need to rely on experts to tell us what to do, uh, which is a continuation of what I, I was just talking about. Um, you know, th- this this idea that somebody can have a definitive pathway as to how to get rid of, of carceral logics. Um, and this idea that I need to know, like, tell me what to do, uh, I find to be incredibly kind of ma- masculinist and ableist mm-hmm. notion of, like, if you're not part of the... the um solution you're part of the problem (laughs) but this is not this is not the binary this is not how this works right like in actuality and this is not how it worked in the and this is not how it works in prison abolition um this idea that we have to know all the things and tell us what to do otherwise we won't do it no we work collectively and we build together and so You know, these are just like a few examples. Uh, I bring a lot other examples in the chapter, but you know, this idea of letting go of particular knowledges and particular attachments to ways of knowing, I think is incredibly important. It's a work that's done with a lot of humility. I mean, the work of abolition, I think is what I'm saying. Um, and it's a collective, you know, work towards collective liberation, and it can't be done by, you know, kind of pointing to expertise and um, and, and and waiting and so on.
1: Yeah, and I think that's such an important lesson, I mean, especially for those who are listening to this as a uh, new books in science, technology, and society uh, episode, is that um, there really are a lot of epistemological debates going on here that may not be read as such right um, between between some of these experts and and some of these um, people on the ground so to speak um, even though sometimes right there, there's folks who are in both places um, and and you know you definitely utilize uh, your expertise here as a genealogists, if you will, for looking at um, not just um, not just uh, the, the conceptualizing, the different ways of conceptualizing decarceration, but also in thinking about resistance, which brings us to the um, part two of the book. And so uh, you start off with, in this chapter four, um, with the title, Why Prisons Are Not the New Asylums. And, uh, you know, I, I think on the face of it, and I, I'd love to hear how this chapter came about. I mean, I remember it was a, a paper that you had uh, published before, but um, or, or with the same title, at least not exactly the same. But um, the this notion of prisons as the new asylums is taking the place of this so-called uh, deinstitutionalization, right, like away from the psychiatric uh, um, facilities or, or asylums into these folks are now being put into prisons. And I think it's a a, a very, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a very convincing storyline because you look at how much people have been incarcerated right around that time, <laughs> right around, you know, in the 1980s in particular. Um, yet, as you point out that this gets rid of, so many other important structural factors for for these um, two shifts that are happening that that are somewhat related but they're not one isn't causing the other you know so i was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this intervention you're making uh, around the so-called new asylums and why why that you know sort of misplaces some of the importance of all this
2: yeah, um, I think that that's a really great question of like how this came came about. Um, this intervention, like many interventions, it really came from anger. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I was just, you know, that narrative is so pervasive, and you see it everywhere. Really, I mean, um, from like infographics to um, Uh, In the book, I really talk about this documentary called The New Asylums. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time when I was uh, uh, finishing writing, uh, well writing the majority of the book i was living in ohio and uh, the new asylums is about a prison in ohio and i was also teaching in a prison in ohio not the same one uh but you know i knew like a little bit about about that and that watching that documentary um and then seeing how everybody um, kind of repeats this narrative as a genealogist it's like a gold mine right you're like just because people repeat it doesn't mean that um, um, it, well it, it does mean that there's um, something there in regards to it it almost becomes like this myth right uh, it becomes this um, story this fairy tale that we tell and and myths by the way I mean it in the kind of um, uh, Uh, semiotic sense, I don't mean it in the sense of something that did not happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Although I do debunk like a lot of the kind of factually some of the the claims here. But as a genealogist, what is interesting to me is like, why, why, (laughs) why this story? And, And why now? I mean... Deinstitutionalization in psychiatric facilities—the um, peak in psychiatric facility nationally was in nineteen in the mid fifties. Uh, so every year since the mid fifties, there's been less and less um, psychiatric institutions and uh, people in them. And the closure of psychiatric facilities, you know, is something that um, began in the fifties and the major waves of it have have stopped by the 70s. We're in 2021 right now, right? Like why do I need to watch a documentary in like 2018 about how deinstitutionalization is causing, causing in the present um, the rise of incarceration? The instrumentalization, you know the, right. the great waves of it have, have long gone um you know uh, before people who made this documentary were probably born you know gone um and so why why is this you know why is this kind of like being scapegoated and again i don't want anybody to listen to come out of this thinking um okay so what nobody circles like in and out of psych facilities into prisons and so on? No, of course people do. I mean, that's how carcerality works. And that's also one of my claims in the book is that mm-hmm. there's this continuum of confinement um, that um, Bernard Harcourt um, talks about a lot as well. So um, I don't want people to think, oh, she's saying all of this is false. No, I mean, myth is in why is this a cultural myth that we tell ourselves in the US? Like, What is it? What lies? uh, What lies under it? And also, what does it hide? And uh, why do we need this myth? Right? Um, And because that's what happens with cultural myth, we need them for something. Just like the story of Thorzin, we need it for something. Um, And so otherwise, it wouldn't appeal to us, it wouldn't be so Kind of taken for granted that psych facilities, in particularly um, less less institutions for people with intellectual disabilities, that's not part of the cultural myth. Um, Psych facilities closed, and then the same people ended up um, re uh, re reincarcerated in prisons and jails. And this is also why we have so many people with psychiatric disabilities in uh, prisons today. And it doesn't work. Factually, um, on a lot of levels, either like I said, in terms of temporality, um, you know, deinstitutionalization—it's something that happened like decades before the rise of incarceration. So it, it, you can't say that that's what led to the rise of incarceration. Okay. Um, you know, most people that are now in prisons and have. Been in prisons for you know the last like two decades at least, or if not three, depending on what state, um, have never been institutionalized. Um, definitely not for like a long time because that era has um, you know shifted. Uh, demographically, it's it's a very problematic claim because the the rise in incarceration particularly affected. Um, uh, men, uh, particularly black and brown and especially black uh, in the United States, which does not mean other groups are not overrepresented. Um, but in the time frame that we're talking about the rise of incarceration, so we're talking about particularly the 80s, um, and onward, so 80s, 90s, and so on, uh, we definitely see um, much more uh, men of color being incarcerated in prisons. These were not the population that were deinstitutionalized necessarily, which were more even in terms of gender distribution um, and race as well. So it's not like buses left... Um, you know, psych facilities dumped people in the streets and then led them to the same people to be incarcerated in prison. Um, yes, there are quite a few people that cycle in and out of of these facilities. Again, this is not to say that that is not happening. But my bigger question is, what does it hide? And um, it hides various things. One uh, one thing that it hides is. Um, the fact that, you know, when we say, um, uh, secu- uh, I'm sorry, prisons are the new asylums and Cook County Jail, which is where I live, or LA County Jail are the biggest mental health facilities in the US. People say that. They love to say that. They're the biggest mental health facilities in the US because um, uh, psychiatric facilities closed and um, the the most people that we have right now living in congregate facilities um, are in prison. Well, that claim hides two realities. One is um, people, um, it's not like when people were incarcerated in the other facilities, meaning psych facilities, they got treated well or at all often. And so, um, you know, this idea of let's go back to the great old days of Uh, Psychiatric institutionalization really hides all the knowledges that I just spoke about for like the last 30 minutes, right? It hides all uh, of the knowledges of um, disability, mad people, psychiatric survivor, um, anti-psychiatry, self-advocacy, and so on and so on. Um, So really the autonomy and the self-determination and the knowledge of people with disabilities who have fought for deinstitutionalization and so, you know, to say that these are um, now because unfortunately psych facilities closed and we don't have where to put people, people don't need to be put somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> I mean, that is exactly the problem, not the solution. Um, people need um, self-determination. People need housing. People need food. People need um, uh Uh, healthcare system that doesn't exist in the U.S. People need a lot of things, um, but they don't need to be put somewhere. And certainly they don't need to be put in carceral spaces, whether they're prisons or jails or um, psych facilities. And the second thing that this, um, well, two more things, that this equation hides uh, this idea of you know, Cook County Jail is the largest mental health facility in the U.S., is that it's actually not. I mean, it doesn't provide treatment. If you're going to say mental health facility, then you need to actually provide something for people, right? Um, And it hides the fact that prison is disabling and prison is maddening. So if you want to ask why are there so many, quote unquote, mentally ill people in prison, start with the prison, um, I mean, that's what people who are incarcerated tell us like time and time again, like they go crazy in there. And um, if they come into jails and prisons um, with already a psychiatric um, uh, kind of crisis or mental health difference or disability, it usually gets way worse in these facilities. And people who work in these facilities will tell you the same way. Like there's no, um, it, this is not a secret. I mean, if you go into any um jail or prison, this is incredibly apparent what's going on. Uh, they're not meant to do these things, right? Treatment is not what happens in prisons. Prisons are sites of punishment. Um and and that's that's what they are. And so it hides that reality. But lastly, um and then we can move on, you know, the the thing that it really hides is that um like you were saying in your question, um Two things happened at the same time, which was deinstitutionalization, um, and then uh, what happened at the same time was uh, basically a major, major social, economic, political abandonment, meaning um, the complete diffusion of the the safety net. Um, and this, you can, you know, now we call it neoliberalism. This is what you know Reagan imported into the U.S. from the U.K. First as governor and then as as president, so uh-huh. neoliberalism happened, and what happened was that money um, completely uh, vacated social services and housing, um, and healthcare and other things and welfare and and went into corrections. So when we think about like the rise of incarceration and kind of the prison building binge and all of that. Uh, we really need to think about this hand in hand. Um, and I think it's really kind of it's it's really important to not blame the de- institutionalization because, uh, you know, like we say in the social sciences, causation is not, uh, correlation is not causation. Two things happen at the same time does not mean one led to the other thing. It mm-hmm. means there were first forces that created both of those things that were above both of those things. And these are, you know, economic and social and ethical and ideological and financial forces. And until we kind of reckon with that, we're really just blaming the institutionalization for, um, for things it's, uh, it did not do.
1: Right. So, um, you then talk about some of the extension of this carceral logic, right? Cause, cause one of the, uh, factors here that you mentioned in the new asylums chapters is uh, homelessness and, and, um, that relationship, um, to, um, incarceration, but you also, uh, talked in, in the next chapter about, um, segregation, desegregation and NIMBY. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, you know, some of the tensions there between, um, this you know inclusion and exclusion and um uh connection here to uh race and disability in particular
2: yeah so i'll only say like a little bit because i know we are um you know, this book is very long. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I know that we're kind of like running out of time, but, um, you know, the connection between race and, and disability is really something that's a thorough line, be- you know, in, in all this book. Um, yes. And um, sometimes I talk about it as uh, race ability, um, meaning exactly like how these two things are uh, inseparable from each other. And sometimes I talk about um, the concept of uh, or the process of racial criminal pathologization, which is how um, criminalization is completely connected to medicalization or pathologizing particular bodies and minds and how that's completely a a racial project. And so in chapter five, um, um, I, I show, and this is similar to kind of what I do in, in chapters, um, the last chapter as well, the last chapter is about lawsuits. Um, but in chapter five, I try to connect, uh, I try to show the deinstitutionalization, we can see it or read it also as a, um, a desegregation movement. Um, and it, it's it worked on parallel and intersecting tracks with desegregation in terms of racial desegregation. I think a lot of people understand what I mean by racial desegregation in housing, right? Um, But I don't think people understand um, desegregation based on disability, which is um, something that, that, again, completely intersected with race, um, but um, something that maybe people are less familiar with. So in that chapter, I talk about uh, Nimby mean not in my backyard, The response to uh, group homes, for example, being constructed in uh, residential um, areas, particularly um, residential areas where people are uh, white and middle class, uh, which is also the areas where racial desegregation was the most kind of uh, opposed to. And the taxid- tactics that were used for both were were very similar, um, and so I try to kind of show again the kind of genealogy of those two things and how they are actually um, connected um, to each other. Uh, and I do that through you know various kind of um, examples and uh, examples of of lawsuits and examples of the tactics that were used in fighting for um, this uh, against um, um, desegregation and the fighting for basically being segregated. Uh, we don't want these quote unquote people um, next door. Um, so I, I I give a lot of uh, different kind of um, texture uh, to this story, um, you know, including the fact that one of the things that was done is that they did these, like, um, basically notifications um, that they they sometimes did uh, or surveys or town halls in regards to, okay, there's going to be a group home here for people who were recently incarcerated or drug users or um, people with intellectual disabilities or and so on and so on. What do you think? Right. And what I try to say uh, in the one of the things that I say in this chapter is, why do we do that? You know, um, I can't like really taking the, the taking for granted and putting it on its head. I mean. If I move to a particular um, area that, that I can afford, or does somebody come and ask me, hey, I'm going to have a kid. What do you think about that? Like, should I do, not do? I'm also going to adopt a dog. Should I not? You know, like we don't ask people a- about those things. And so, why do we make an exception for particular populations? Uh, why do we go and notify people that there's going to be people with disabilities in their neighborhoods when? you know, and I I identify as a person with disabilities. We've been in everybody's neighborhood all the time, you know, and not all disabilities are visible and, um, and so on. So, I mean, this is of course something that creates a boundary and it creates the boundaries of us versus them. It creates a boundary around race and around ability and about around the construction of those two things together. Um, And, I show, you know, through various examples how how that worked uh, in the context of housing uh post deinstitutionalization.
1: Yeah, and I don't, I don't I know we're about out of time and I don't want to pressure you so I wanted to um just ask before we wrap up a couple uh questions. One is um is there anything else, since we didn't get to the last couple chapters um, in much depth, if you want to add anything else um, about your book, any of the um, main ideas that uh, you felt like you wanted to speak upon before we, um, in our interview?
2: Um, first, I want to apologize that the book is so long, <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, it was really um, a labor of not just love but accountability um, to the complexity of the history and the movements that I'm uh, writing about and with and on and so I couldn't find a way to be succinct about it to be honest Um, and I think it's okay if people don't read everything or if people come back to particular things later on Um, every chapter kind of brings its own thematic Uh, issue that connects the institutionalization to prison abolition. Um, I'll just say like very briefly, you know, chapter six really brings um, a more kind of intersectional lens around um, who works in these facilities and who is against the closure of these facilities. Because even if we're all, you know, if everybody reading the book and is like, yes, let's do this, you know, there's a whole history of trying to close prisons, and psychiatric institutions, and institutions for people with intellectual disabilities, that is completely did not work. And so I'm trying to kind of ask, okay, who, who are these people uh, and, and groups and uh, constituents that are against the closure of these facilities and they're not necessarily who you think they are. And then I try to ask, you know, through um, the connection of gender and race and ability, um, how are these people connected to each other, and how can we create coalitions then around this resistance uh, to closure? Um, and the last chapter connects uh, prison right litigation to um, to institutional uh, litigation. Um, it's more complex than what I just said, but um, you know, it, it's. Um, I think it's it's one of the chapters that's most kind of like current uh in the sense that it kind of brings us to the now and the notion of what can we take from um asking the states to fix things that the state uh messed up intentionally but mm-hmm. right? like what does it mean to use the law to get people out when the law put people in um And this is really where I kind of put this idea that, again, runs throughout the book, but I think maybe it's, especially in the last chapter, uh, this idea of uh, crip or mad of color critique. Um, How can we bring liberation through frameworks that are not uh, state interventions? And how can we learn from that?
1: Right, that's so important right now. Um, You have so many so many people um, trying to work towards abolition and not um, knowing so much of this of this um, history and, and now they can they can pick up your book and get at least some of that and it's such a rich book so even though I'm, I'm sad we didn't get to talk about those last couple chapters in depth um, you know it's such a rich book that it's it I took my time to really consume it because it was so rich and I really hope that the audience does the same. Um, but before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if um, you wanted to speak upon um, any new projects that you're working on. Anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up?
2: Um, I'll just be pretty vague. But, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm uh, doing now is um, I'm kind of I'm looking at the history of um, I would say broadly, the critiques to psychiatry that are connected to imprisonment uh, and particularly um, critiques of psychiatry that we wouldn't necessarily call anti-psychiatry because the history of anti-psychiatry is pretty white and not super varied. Um, But there's been critiques to this idea of medicalizing People and medicalizing uh, madness and medicalizing race um, from a variety of of movements, and I'm I'm, um, still researching in the same time frame, so the 60s, 70s, uh, and so on. And I'm particularly looking at um, the kind of examples of um, trying to biologize violence, to um, you know, research that kind of looked at violence as something biological and. Of course, that's also a, uh, a racial project and a racist project. Um, so that's kind of the genealogy that I'm tracing right now. And this is also related to the history of behavior modification in prisons and psychosurgery. And it's just really fascinating. And I don't even know what will come of this research, but um, I'm finding myself really interested, so.
1: Well, yeah, that sounds like an amazing project. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um- Yeah. Thanks again for joining us on today's episode. And I really enjoyed it.
2: Take care. Thank you.